millions of people have been empowered by Amy Cuddy's groundbreaking TED Talk on body language. In this episode of 92Y Talks, she sits down with Susan Kane to discuss her first book, Presence, bringing your boldest self to your biggest challenges. The conversation was recorded on January 21st, 2016, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. I want to just start by with a kind of cinematic version of an establishing shot. Can we just define what you mean by presence? Sure. Um, so I, I really wanted to take presence off of his pedestal. Uh, I think that people see it as something that's not accessible to the average person, that it's something that you get through you know, lots of yoga retreats, and yoga retreats are great, but, or you know, a, a, a pilgrimage around the world, um, and it's, it's some permanent state that you eventually get at the very end of your life. And I don't see it that way at all. I see it as momentary and fleeting. And of course, everyone has been present in certain moments and isn't present in others. So I wanted to sort of break it down in a way that people could understand and harness you know, the tools that get them there. The way that I see presence is that it's, it's the state of being attuned to and able to really comfortably express your true self. Um, and you know, your true self is your, your values and your beliefs and your, your skills, your passions, all of those things that make you, you, mm-hmm. to be attuned to them and able to deliver them, especially under pressure, that's presence. So let me just ask you, because I think it seems to many people, and I'm sure many of the people in the audience here, that, that there are some people who are kind of born with a magical quality that gets called presence, uh, whether it is that same definition that you just gave us or not. And so what do you think about that so-called magical quality? I don't, I don't think it's quite the same as presence, although it may be heavily overlapping in the Venn diagram. Mm-hmm. I think it's you know, something that we would call charisma. Um, and I, I, just, yeah, I just don't think that people are, are, are born with this. Charisma seems to be more about you know, sort of the intoxicating quality that you have on other people, mm-hmm. as opposed to presence, which is more about, it, it's actually sort of more about the, the self in, in relation to others and, and how you, you feel you represented yourself in a situation and whether you were able to engage. So it's less about how the other sees you and more about how you see yourself. Uh, to, I don't know if that makes sense quite, but, but I think it's charisma that you're talking about. And I do think some people are born with that quality, mm-hmm. uh, but, but I don't think it's quite the same. So that's actually interesting for people to distinguish between presence and charisma. And yeah. presence is really the, the real elixir that people yeah, should be Yeah, and after. it doesn't mean you're running around on a stage and you know, uh, you know, casting a spell on people. I, I mean, charisma just makes me think, and, and I, I mean no disrespect, but it makes me think Dale Carnegie. Mm-hmm. You know, how to win friends and influence people. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes, and maybe because I'm at a business school, people think that's what I'm talking about, right, and it's really right, not what right. I'm talking about. Uh, I want people to be able to influence themselves, yeah, yeah. Uh, which actually, in the end, as Walt Whitman said, it, it is you know, our, our, our presence that convinces. Right. Uh, so, so we convince ourselves, and that allows us to convince others, but charisma seems to be very outward, mm-hmm. you know, very much about the influence that you're having on others. And it's so funny, actually, that you mentioned Dale Carnegie, because I actually researched him for my book. And in real life, he was this shy, insecure um, person who 
was, who was always thinking about how to become more charismatic and so made a study of this. And I think that ends up resonating for so many people. Yeah, but I think that people who don't know that history think that he was one of these people who was born exactly. with charisma exactly. or presence. Right. Yeah. And so what about for you? You're out here now. I mean, you're out here tonight, but you're out here in general, writ large, right? Do you feel an extra pressure to model the quality of presence that you're talking about? What, what is that like for you? Mm. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> right now, I'm not sure if I should be present with you or with these people. Or, but uh, yeah, I, yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've got two, I've got two now. First, it's posture. Uh -huh. And I'm telling you, you know, if my, my posture is poor, the internet will go wild with trolls reminding me that my posture was poor. So that's, that's one. But then people also say that they feel self-conscious around me about their posture. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But now I do feel that I, I need to model presence. And actually, to be honest, today I had a packed schedule and I was really excited about this. This is sort of like a life highlight for me. This is like a nerd life highlight. <laughs> and uh, so thank you all for coming. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, <laughs> and so I felt, I, and I was starting to get tired. It was like mid-afternoon and I had yeah. talked a lot. And I was at um, a sort of interview and I really <clears throat> was like, I was, I was not doing well. I, I was really having trouble concentrating. And they kept asking me questions, and I kept restarting. And it kind of reminded me of my elevator pitch story. But I felt I was so apologetic, because I felt like they must have such high expectations for, my, for me when it comes to presence. And I was really not present. And I actually had to say, I am so sorry. But we need to do this another day, because I cannot be present with you right now. I can't give you my all, and I'm going to leave feeling really bad if I don't. Mm -hmm. And they were super understanding, but um, yeah, and I, I felt acutely, and, the, and they weren't, they were super nice people, but all of the things I talk about in the book about feeling socially judged and how we're in their heads trying to figure out what they think, that's, I was doing all of those things. I was like, oh my gosh, they must think I'm such an idiot and that I'm so full of it because I wrote this book and now I'm not being present. Right. So saying, you know what, time out, I, I've got to stop this one because I, I can't do this, ended up being the right thing. But yeah, I do feel worried about that now. Well, I mean, it's funny, actually, in telling that story, I think you just gave the audience a tremendous gift of that one tip of, of saying, it's actually okay to say, yeah. I can't be present right now, but I can be later, so just give me a moment, yeah. or give me a few moments, right? And, and that gets, I think, at this theme that really surprised me after the TED Talk and with all the emails that I got, um, where people would write about... Uh, a stressful situation, a big, you know, I, I talk about bi your biggest challenges, and they weren't focused on whether or not they got the job or, or the good negotiation outcome or the venture capital money or what, they, they weren't talking about the concrete outcome. They were talking about how they felt when they left the situation. Mm -hmm. And it, the theme was regret or satisfaction. Mm -hmm. That was what people cared about. They, they cared did I represent myself fully? Did I show them who I really am? Did I feel seen and understood? Um, and so that was the, this today was that kind of situation where I knew that I was going to even if I had finished it, if I had you know helped them create the product that needed to be created, I would have left feeling really really bad and regretful about how I had uh, presented myself. 
So that theme, I think, made me so much more interested in this idea of presence that it, it, it kind of moved me away from focusing on these concrete outcomes to just wanting people to be able to face challenges that they face every day without that sense of regret after they leave. Mm -hmm. Because people can accept negative outcomes as long as they feel they represented themselves and that the process was fair, which yes. procedural justice, which is another thing. Yeah. Could be another book, but, but, but half of it is, I wanna feel that I did my best, I did my part, mm -hmm. and I was seen and, and understood. Right. I mean, so having come to know you over these last years, I think of you as, inhabiting the role of presence as you define it, you know, a huge lot of the time. So from my perspective, it seems like this is something that comes quite easily to you. And that makes me wonder, what made you think to write the book in the first place? What made you think to go into this whole line of work in the first place? Can you tell I just, us all it's about really funny that, that you really say is. that because I was just, because Ken, your husband, yes. sent us a picture the other day from Christmas because we do holidays together. And, uh, and it was a picture of like everyone else playing a board game and I wasn't in the room. And I was like, oh. <laughs> you know, I was like probably on the internet worrying about some review or something like that. So I'm really shocked to hear you say that you see me as present. Um, I, uh, she's very understanding about those things. Um, she's, she's like my, my, my book writing doula. Yeah, I mean, well, it was a funny thing. <laughs> I mean, we just took this ski holiday about two weeks ago, right? Right before your book came out, and I had been in the exact same position at that exact same time of year, only several years before, so, you know, I understood every beat of what you were going it through. It was literally the day, yeah. the book came out, and the next day we went out to, to Utah and, and stayed with stayed with them. So yeah, you really saw the total neurotic <laughs> phase of this. Um, no, I, I mean, I don't think, here's, I do think that I was born really curious and interested in people. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so I think that helps. Just to be fair, I think that helps. Um, you, I'm going to stop you for a second. Why yeah. does that help? Because being present, well, you can certainly be present alone. Mm -hmm. Uh, the challenges that I, I write about and the things that scare people the most tend to be social interactions, mm -hmm. right? So in those challenges, being interested in people and really wanting to know what they're about and what motivates them, yeah. that makes it easier for you to get a little bit out of your head and yep. focus on them. Yep. That doesn't mean that, it's, that, it's, uh, that it works all the time, but, but that helps a little bit. But no, I don't think at all that, I, in fact, I was, you know, I did lots of performing arts. I was a professional ballet dancer. I sang, I did theater. I think I had like terrible stage fright and I would be on stage and, you know, almost, I don't know if anyone remembers that Brady Bunch episode where Marsha sure gets on I TV do. Before you even and she the sees episode. the red light and she can't stop looking at the red light on the camera. Oh, anyway, no, all right. It. Okay. <laughs> so but you felt that way when you were I on felt, stage. Yeah, so I really felt like it was very hard for me to be present. Mm -hmm. um, it, I, I think I've learned to do it uh, since my sort of since my head injury and like very very slowly mm -hmm. but it it i think that's what we tell everybody what you mean by that cuz i'm not sure everyone in the audience knows yeah Let's... so last week i had a head no i'm just kidding it was <laughs> um, and since then no 
I, when I was 19, so I, I went to the University of Colorado. I wanted to go to a state school, and, and I was paying for college. <laughs> that was part of why I wanted to go to a state school. Uh, but I, I, I was a sophomore, and I had taken a weekend trip to Missoula, Montana, with some friends of mine, and we decided to drive back Sunday night and try to get there for morning classes at 8, which was a mistake. It's like a 14-hour drive, and we were taking shifts. Anyway, to make a long story short, in the middle of the night, like about 4 in the morning, my friend who was driving fell asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, we were you know, in Cheyenne, like near Cheyenne, Wyoming. And there were no other cars. I was asleep in the back seat with the seat down, and the other friend had fallen asleep. They had their seatbelts on, just... I, I realize that I don't often tell people they're fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but she fell asleep, r- went off the road. The rumble strip woke her up. She overcorrected. We rolled several times, and I got thrown out of the car. So I don't remember it, but I woke up in a hospital, and I had been withdrawn from college. And, you know, they did all of this neuropsych testing. And, you know, I mean, I, you know, they poke and prod in every way with head injuries because they, they don't know what data they need to give you some kind of prognosis. But... I, I, re, I learned that my IQ had dropped by 30 points, which is two standard deviations. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. I knew what my IQ was because I had been in a gifted program as a kid in this really small town farm school. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it kind of meant a lot to me as part of my identity. So when I lost that, and then also with that kind of brain injury, which is called a diffuse axonal injury, where the different layer, if you think of the brain as an onion, and the each layer is a different density, and I'm really sorry to um, the neuroscientists out there because I'm really cheapening this. But and then when you have that kind of accident, all of the layers of the brain are kind of moving against each other at different speeds. You have this diffuse axonal injury; axons are tearing everywhere, so you become a different person. You really do. Your emotions, thoughts, behaviors, everything is affected. It's not like oh, it's the motor cortex, so it's going to affect your movement. So you you just have such a loss of identity, and it's such a struggle. You try to hold on to your old self, and you eventually have to break up with the old self because you can't really you don't know each other anymore, and then you have to like hope there's another self out there for you. It's one of those, like, it's not a terrible relationship, but I think we need to break up, and I'm really hoping there's something new. It just was such a struggle, and there was so much social anxiety. Uh, everything, was, everything was difficult. And when I, it, it was really sort of being more mindful about how I learned and how I interacted, you know, starting to pay attention to those, like break it down, mm-hmm. things that seemed natural before, um, it kind of forced you to, to be more present. And then, of course, that with the TED Talk and, and you know, telling the story a little bit about the head injury and hearing people write and share their similar experiences uh, just really got me interested in this, this topic of, of how do we become present mm-hmm. um, and not fearful. And, yeah, I, sorry, I, I'm going on and on about this, but I think that one of the one of the one of the main themes for me is I recent you know I realized recently that the people who I most respect or most um, look up to are I used to think of them as fearless, and now I think of them as brave. Mm-hmm. Uh, that of course they're fearful, 
but they're they push through it. And that was a big part of becoming present for me. Was I had so many fears after the head injury. I felt just so dragged down by those fears. I saw every situation that was challenging as a threat and not an opportunity. And you know, so I could not engage and be present. Anyway, so as I learned that it was really sort of about pushing through those fears, that allowed me to become more present. I, I mean, I'm still learning, obviously. Yeah. I'm not like all over the place right now, but. So, I mean, so what's your advice to somebody who, for whatever their own reason of personal history, is in a place right now where they are feeling fearful, uh, whether of social rejection, which I think is often, as you're saying, one of the more acute and disabling fears, or whatever the, 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 the sense of acute awareness of threat is, somebody who's in that place, how do they go from that place to a place where they're present with their whole selves? Because as you say, you know, when you have those kinds of fears, it's putting a cognitive load, and so it's actually preventing you from being able to That's be right. present. So uh, being able to be present, so it's a vicious cycle. Right. Okay, so what's the way out of the cycle? I'll, I'll, gi I'll, I'll give a, a few examples. Um, and, and just to be clear again, it's, I don't think that they're just going to become present, but they'll be able to be present in these moments. Right. The f first, and it, this may seem uh, really small, but it, I think it's really important is to realize that everyone has felt this way mm -hmm. and like about half the world is feeling this way right now, mm -hmm. right? So you're not alone in that feeling. It's so isolating feeling and I think part of it is that it's, it's based in this fear of being kicked out of the clan, uh, but it's also because we don't talk about our you know, weaknesses. Yeah. We, we're afraid to share those feelings and so we don't get to, to connect. You know, men even more than women, yeah. I think are burdened by this. Um, but so I think the first is to realize that you are not alone and it's not abnormal or pathological to be feeling that way. The second, I, I think, is to affirm your core values, the things that really make you, you. So if you had to list five things that are core to who you are, you know, it could be family, um, art, uh, helping people, fairness, you know, there, there are so many things. List five, you know, rank them, and then choose the top one. Write about why it matters to you, why it makes you you, and write about a time when you were really able to express that mm -hmm. and how it felt. That's called self-affirmation. Self-affirmation is not Stuart Smalley, sorry, another pop culture yeah. reference that people might not get, but we're who used to say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And then by the end of the sketch, he'd be in a shame spiral and saying he hated himself and he would die without love and everything. Uh, so the reason that didn't work was because it was way too general. And when you feel bad, you can't just be like, oh, I'm actually great. Because then you're just lying to yourself and you're like, now I don't, I trust you even less. But self the real self-affirmation is this. It's going, actually, it's not about being great at anything. It's about what I care about and what makes me me. So self-affirmation has been shown in literally hundreds of studies to reduce people's social anxiety dramatically, even to reduce uh, their, their hormone levels that are related to anxiety. And there, there are many different hormones that are related to anxiety. It improves their performance in stressful situations. The, the coolest thing about it is that, say you, uh, you know, your, your, your value is helping people and that's what you write about, but your challenge is public speaking. It doesn't make sense really that 
writing about how you like helping people will make you a bit better public speaker, but it does. Because when you go in to do that stressful thing, you know that whatever the outcome, you're still you. Mm -hmm. You feel more grounded. And you, get, you leave feeling less, less judged. Uh, and the funny thing is that you become a better public speaker yeah, yeah. or better at math tests or whatever the challenge is. So that's, I think, so, you know, so, so knowing that other people feel this way, self-affirmation, and you know, a lot of the book is about how your body is leading your mind. And that trap that I was just talking about, the Stuart Smalley trap, which is what I would call a mind-mind intervention, you know, it doesn't work because we don't trust ourselves in those moments, but the body is so linked to the mind. I would say the body is constantly leading a conversation with the mind. If you start to understand how that's working, you can skip the, the, that, the mind-mind conversation and have your body tell you how you're feel, feeling. Tell you, have your body tell you you're not being chased by a predator, you're just a little stressed out about this thing coming up. Mm -hmm. uh, because we haven't quite, our nervous systems haven't caught up yet with, with where we are uh, sort of socially. Normally we're not being chased by a predator, it's not a life or death situation, but our, our, our sort of nervous systems are telling us fight or flee, yeah. and it's just not at all adaptive in those situations. So the body, by opening up and acting as if you're not feeling threatened, that you're feeling safe, tells the mind you're okay. Right. So those are three, three things. Those are really good ones. Um, you know, it's funny, I, so you were probably partly alluding to my example because I used to be very uncomfortable with public speaking. And one of the things that, one of the shifts that I made also over time was when I first started out speaking, I used to focus on the members of the audience who looked very bored or disgruntled. Oh, and, and, I, I and I kind of learned over like time smallest. to shift my focus to the people who actually looked interested. Yeah. And, 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 and then from there, you start shifting your internal focus to not even thinking or particularly caring that much about how you're judged. You know, you're there to communicate something and hopefully to impart something of value. And that's, that's the only standard that matters. And people used to tell me that when I first started speaking and I would say, you're crazy. No one can really go on stage and feel that way. But it is possible to make that shift Absolutely. over time. Um, okay, so I, I'm going to read a quote to you from your book that I found fascinating, and I'm going to ask you to discuss it. Uh, powerless, you say, powerlessness is at least as likely to corrupt as power is. It's really intriguing. Yeah. So... Power is this really prickly word. And if you do like a word association and I say, what, what word do you think of when I say power? A lot of you would say corrupt or corruption. Um, it's, it's funny, I teach at a business school and it's less a problem there. People are more comfortable with the word. But, um, but in, in general, I think that people hear power and they think corruption. And I think it's because they're thinking of, first of all, a certain kind of power yeah. in a certain kind of very salient situation where someone does abuse it. Right. And just, I'm gonna walk through this a little bit. First, they're talking about, when you say power, you think about social power, most of us do, which is power over others. It's power over others' access to necessary resources. Uh, it's not about the self, it's about, it's about power over other people. Um, Robert Caro, who was LBJ's biographer, uh, was once asked, so does power corrupt? And he said something like, power doesn't necessarily corrupt, but power always reveals. Mm -hmm. And that gets closer to 
my way of thinking of power. He was still talking about social power and sort of good leaders and bad leaders. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take it a little bit further and say that the kind of power I'm talking about is personal power. So if social power is is controlling access to resources that other people need and that are external to you, personal power is, con is controlling access to the resources that you possess internally. Now, it seems that you should be able to access those easily, but in some ways, they're even harder to access, mm -hmm. especially when you, um, you feel scared or you know, you're having this fight or flight response. Yeah. So what happens when people feel personally powerless I think, is that they act out, they, or they, they, they become destructive, either to themselves or to others, because they feel so bad and they have no idea how to get out of it. I would say, honestly, the people who are writing the nastiest comments on the internet are people who are sitting at home feeling powerless, mm -hmm. um, feeling alone, feeling scared, mm -hmm. and that's a kind of destructive behavior that happens. So I, I, I think that it not only can can corrupt how you treat other people, but it also corrupts you, yourself, right? It, it doesn't allow you to be you. It puts you in a little bit of a cage. Mm -hmm. So the kind of, this kind of personal power is, is infinite. It's not zero sum. Right. It's liberating. It allows you to comfortably be in situations where you might get pushed back, but you're okay because you know who you are. Mm -hmm. And so when you're on the other side of the internet comments, trollish internet comments that you know are coming from somebody who probably is writing out of a sense of powerlessness. How much does that help in the moment? Um, uh, um, it's, I have no, there's a, there's a thing that happens when something new comes out where the nastiest people come out at the beginning and then it slows down. I'm yeah, not sure why. Yeah. But so I'm in yeah. that phase right now. Ah. Which, so it's a little oh, acute. And I didn't mean you specifically. No, no, no. Because, no, I, no, I, know, know, I think but everybody deals with. But, but it feels, right, right now, it feels like a very personal question. Okay. But yeah. it's. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, no, no. No, it's fine. I, you know, it's. Okay, if you remind me of the body shaming comments and all the nasty. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But it, it's. It, it, it's it's not the you, it's, you need to take a moment to step back from it to be able to to apply that wisdom yeah, to how you yeah. feel about those things. So your first, of course, your first reaction is hurt right. or anger or what, whatever you know, right. or, or to feel ashamed. Um, it's when you get a little bit of distance from it. So one thing I have learned, and I learned this actually from. Well, first of all, being a professional ballet dancer, like you deal with a lot of rejection and nastiness. So my grad school advisor always said that that's what made me tough, was that I had been a ballet dancer. Totally uh, but in, in academia, you know, you're constantly getting reviews of your articles. Yeah. And there, nothing just gets accepted. Everything is picked apart. That's the way the process works. So I really took it hard when I'd get these reviews back. And then I learned that I needed to read them and not even begin to write a response, to just set them aside, look at them again in a week. And I felt so much more able to have some power, to, to get back in the saddle and to actually respond. Right. Now, I'm not saying that the people writing those reviews right. were coming from a place of powerless necessarily, although I think academia is full of uh, you know, sort of squabbles that come down to personal powerlessness. But on, online, I think it's the same way. I mean, sometimes uh, you just need to take some space from it. Right. And you can come back and go, 
I can perspective take, take now and understand that this person is feeling bad and it has yeah. nothing to do with me. Yeah. So it's not, um, it's not easy, but I think I'm learning how to do that. No, and I, I, I think the perspective taking is a really big thing. Um, and I mean, if you're talking about those kinds of online comments, I remember when I was going through that, I actually asked my husband to read all of them. I didn't, even, I didn't want to interact with them directly. There was something about having of them course. mediated. I, I mean, some of them I didn't want to hear at all, but some I wanted to know what they were, but there was something about having them read to me by someone else instead of interacting with it directly that was able to remove the sting. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. So. Here, this is a question that actually came. We did a, a great Facebook chat together a week or so ago, and uh, one of the people asked, what do you do if you, you really are a nice person, you want to show up for people, but you have bitchy resting face? And so, <laughs> I don't so people really that don't one. know that about you. Wow. Like, how, how do you show up for them? Like, oh, oh, I know. Wait, wait, there was more to the question. It was also... He was saying, I want to be authentic, and I feel like the oh. only way to be authentic would be to have my real face, but my real face conveys the wrong idea. Oh, jeez, that's <laughs> a really hard one. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, like, I used to be stumped by a version of this when, back when I used to be a corporate lawyer, you know, a million years ago. So my way of working, my preferred way of working is with my head down, and I'm like this. And I would sit at my desk in that position, and people would walk by and say, what's the matter, what's the matter, what's the matter? And meanwhile, I was in a very deep state of flow. And it used to drive me crazy that it was misperceived. Um, but I, I, I did kind of toggle back and forth that between feels different to me. doing my thing and yeah. working so, like that. Okay, I, here, here's a half-baked answer okay. that you can dismiss or not. but. Um, I would say, I don't remember that question, so sorry that I missed oh. that one, but, but it, that facial expression, you know, back to the body-mind connection, is yeah. probably not making that person feel that good, right? So there's, there's, there's another motivator to maybe yeah. shift it a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, so perhaps uh, uh, changing that expression might change mood a little bit and even allow that person to engage a little bit more. I, I, and that, there's a qualification, which is I really don't like these sort of outside-in approaches to changing your body language, like, well, change this expression or do this or that in interactions, right? So what you're doing before in private, if it helps you, great. I generally don't like these sort of piecemeal, like smile more and do this and do that kinds of kinds of interventions. So I'm a little bit hesitant to, to give that advice, but um, you know, rem remembering that your your facial expressions, your body language, other people are mirroring, mm -hmm. and it's a little bit contagious. Yeah. There might be some motivation to shift that a little right. bit. Yeah. So that's one of the maybe few situations where I would say you might want to work on that. Right. No, that makes total <laughs> sense. OK, wait, I want to dive deeper into body language, because you've done incredible work on the role of the body in overcoming traumatic memories and traumatic experiences. Can, can you share a little bit of that? It, it's, it's, I've, I've done research on other people's research, so I haven't done that, that actual research. But what I learned as I was writing the book, you know, I'm not a clinical psychologist, so I don't have access to clinical populations. Mm -hmm. And 
I really hadn't thought much about how the body-mind connection worked for people who were injured, who, were, who had experienced trauma, um, who were dealing with other kinds of mental illness. But when I started to dig in this, into this body-mind literature, I realized that most of it was actually not in social psychology. It was in clinical psychology or in medical journals. Um, because trauma, in, in, in a way, having post-traumatic stress is the ultimate form of personal powerlessness. You feel that your body has betrayed you, you've lost your sense of identity and pride, you're constantly in a state of fear, right? So you're shut down, you're not able to be present, you don't remember even who you are, and it's visceral. Trauma is so visceral. Physical trauma is visceral, psychological trauma is visceral. It's in the body, the body carries trauma around. And there are others, I mean, Bessel van der Kolk, um, who, I, I, the Body Keeps the Score, I think is his book. He's done tremendous work on this, people who've experienced all kinds of trauma. But the, the work that I'm seeing now is uh, a lot of work dealing with uh, combat veterans with PTS. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a very difficult population to treat for a couple of reasons. One, post-traumatic stress is just hard to treat. But second, um, they really don't want to talk about it. They don't want to revisit the experience. Uh, they, they generally, and I, this is not a stereotype, I think this is a reality, they are from a, a sort of a population that isn't that interested in talk therapy, mm -hmm. and so they, they already have a sort of aversion to it. And they really do feel that their bodies betrayed them in some way, mm -hmm. that their bodies let them down. They've lost their sense of pride. They also are coming back from a situation where they felt they would find a sense of pride and honor and instead they came back feeling completely traumatized and helpless and powerless. So these body interventions kind of skip the talking. And I'm not saying that talk therapy is bad. For many people, that's the way to go. And for many people, we should be doing both. For this population, learning tiny little changes that are yoga-based, mm -hmm. uh, completely alleviates post-traumatic stress symptoms. And I'm, I'm really not exaggerating. Wait, wait, wait. Let Some me ask you to say that again. Tiny little changes to can totally alleviate. Post-traumatic stress wow. symptoms. Okay. So um, one of these studies was done by a researcher uh, at Stanford who I think has recently moved to Yale named Emma Sapala, who actually has a book coming out next month. Yeah. And Emma's work, uh, was with veterans. She taught them a really simple yoga-based way of breathing that also involved expan expansive body postures. And with, it, was, it was a very short program. Compared to the control group, the, the experimental group, after the intervention, a month after the intervention, showed no signs of post-traumatic stress. Now, I'm not saying that everyone's going to get the same result, but that's Massive, wow. right? The, it, on the same clinical measures that were used before they went into the program, a year later, the results hardly changed at all. And she and she was hearing these people say things like, "I feel like myself again." One of the fathers wrote to her and said, "Thank you for giving me my son back." Yeah. You know, I'm no. These she said, these were people living alone in in their basements, scared to go out into the world, and they're now interacting with people and feeling proud again. So I think this the trauma and powerlessness are so heavily overlapping, mm -hmm. and it really um, speaks to this body mind connection. Mm -hmm. And so, um, if we wanted to take away from tonight one or two. Are we there? Powerful. Right? No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying, for, for, I'm, I'm just focusing on this 
last point that you made, if we wanted to take away one or two uh, shifts in our own body positioning mm. that we should make ourselves, what do you think are two, one or two of the most important ones, well, or the let, most powerful ones? Let me kind of link it to the last question because I realized I had wanted to say a little bit more about my my own kind of history with yeah, trauma, yeah. Um, and 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 it gets into this. You know, Thank what you. are the what are the things you can take away? But after the head injury, um, I was because I wasn't driving the car. Mm-hmm. Um, I I was terrified to be a passenger. So the first time I got in a car, I re- went completely into this fetal ball. Like I pulled my knees up to my chest and I wrapped my arms around my knees. I felt so totally powerless being a passenger. And it reminded me of when I was little, I, we lived in a park in Washington State, in Eastern Washington, and there weren't many people there, like 300 in this town. And I used to play with the fine little creatures to play with, like, you know, snakes even. But also these little, I, don't, I called them pill bugs. They were those little bugs, yeah. you pick them up and they roll into a ball. And I loved them. I, I, like, I love them, and I wanted them to trust me. And it was great. So, this is Amy. I, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. So I would pick them up, and they would always roll, roll into a ball, and I would feel so bad, because I'd be like, but I'm good, and I'm not going to hurt you. But I realized that I was like this big, you know, big, big threatening creature to them. Mm-hmm. And so when I pulled myself into that position, I remember, I remember so clearly, it was a flashbulb memory, that first ride away from the hospital. I thought, oh my gosh, I feel like a pill bug, like I'm doing what pill bugs do. I didn't at that time realize that the connection, you know, at that time I only thought, well, this is just the way I feel now, there's nothing I can do about it. I didn't think that I could unfurl and make myself feel better, but now I wonder what would have happened, would I have healed faster, sort of psychologically gotten back to myself if I had forced myself to open up then? So, I mean, I guess the first thing is to realize that you know, we spend more time sort of slouched and slumped and, you know, wrapping ourselves up and hiding ourselves than we do open and expansive and taking up space and, and using proud postures. Mm-hmm. You know, what people do when they cross the finish line in first place mm-hmm. in every culture in the world is throw their arms up into a V, lift their chin, and they tend to even open their mouths. It's very expansive. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been studied in about four dozen cultures now, including places where the researcher Jessica Tracy had to walk in and find people who had never interacted with an outsider. When she showed them pictures of people in this pose and said, what are they feeling? They would say things like pride, victory, power. Mm-hmm. Even congenitally blind people do this. right? So it's very, very primitive. That link between expansiveness and power is primitive. Yeah. So what happens if you just turn that around? If you say, okay, well, why don't I act like I won and see what happens to my mind? Mm -hmm. So that's really where this research was kind of coming from. And the first thing is to realize that when you are going like this, what your mind is is hearing from your body is, "Uh uh-oh, you're under attack. You better flee, you better fight, you know, you better better withdraw. don't let your body tell you that. Even when you're just sitting at your computer, you're doing that. It's still, your body is communicating with your mind. So the first thing is just sit, I can't believe I'm saying this, sit up straight, you know? It's, um, and, you know, if you, like, rest your arms on the arms of the chair. Um, 
set up your workspace so that you have to reach a little bit. Uh, put pictures of your family or people that you love above your, you know, high up on the wall so that you have to look up. Get up and walk for, for you know, have, have walking meetings. Just simple things like that that are just part of your, your daily routine. One of my research assistants brushes her teeth with her hand on her hip. <laughs> um, if you sleep in a fetal ball, we have some preliminary evidence that people who wake up like that wake up much more stressed out. Now, wow. it's obviously bi-directional, but, but the people who wake up like this are super happy, <laughs> like annoyingly happy, right? And there are people, and about 40% of people sleep in the fetal position. So if you're a fetal sleeper, especially if you're a fetal hand-clenching sleeper like I am, where you get like impressions of your nails in your hands, <laughs> um, when you wake up, just stretch out for a minute before you put your feet on the ground, because really every day is a challenge right? <laughs> in some way. Uh, so the, those, those are j just sort of the everyday things that you do. Mm -hmm. um, when you, I mean, your phone, and I, uh, your phone, it's a real problem, you know? <laughs> we're, it's, it's, we're all on our phones doing this. This is the posture of people with major depression. Right, it, it really is. It looks just like the drawings of people with major depression. So, so don't let your phone be your enemy. I don't think I'm gonna be able to pry phones out of the hands of people. I can't even put my own down, really. Mm -hmm. But what you can do is set a reminder every hour that says, check your posture. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's, it's sort of like the simplest possible wearable device. Yeah. Uh, to, so ch check your posture and make sure, it, you, I promise you, you get into the habit. You were walking the walk, because I saw you in the green room before yeah. checking your phone, but your posture was perfect. Well, I do try to, I do, yeah. I do move, move a lot. The, so the other yeah. one is that, it's funny, somebody was recently asking me, well, how, how would you apply this to first dates? And I have to tell a personal story here. So my wonderful husband, I don't know where he is, but he's somewhere out there. Um, we met on Facebook uh, when he posted this picture of himself in the most extreme power pose imaginable. All you, honestly, look up Amy Cuddy's husband and you'll see it. Um, <laughs> He's beautiful and this tall, athletic guy. And he lived in Australia, by the way. So we were 10,000 miles apart. It showed up in my news feed, and I thought, what a jerk. Or he must have a good sense of humor. And as you know, he's a, yeah. a gentle giant, yeah. sweetheart, who didn't even really realize that it looked so, <laughs> so intimidating. But our first actual date in person, this was so stupid. We decided to meet in Paris because we were both in Europe for work, and we thought, oh, let's meet in Paris. That would be really romantic. Also, Cadell Evans, the Australian bicyclist, was gonna win the Tour de France that weekend, and he wanted to see it, but uh, that, that was sort of, I thought it was secondary, now I think it was primary. But we met in, <laughs> we met in Paris, and you know, we were wildly nervous. I, like, we were like shaking with, with anxiety. And you know what we did that weekend? We walked all over Paris. We just walked. And it was so much better than sitting in a restaurant and trying to, you know, sitting still and trying to get to know each other. Walking allowed us to move and to expand. Mm -hmm. And walking is also associated with, I mean, there, 
When people feel powerful, their walking becomes more expansive, their strides are longer, they move their arms more, they, they have more vertical movement, they move their, their heads more. Mm -hmm. So walking was, we basically spent two days walking around Paris as our first date, which really allowed us to not feel so, you know, eyes locked yeah. on each other, but also I think the movement made us feel a little bit more confident and powerful. Right. So paying attention to your walking. And then, the, of course, the big one, and. And maybe we'll get into this this next, but is you know of course the thing that that people associate with me is power posing and Wonder Woman in particular, and I, I did get it. I got recently an email from somebody who knows Linda Carter who said Linda Carter <laughs> wants to meet you, and I was like, Oh, that is fantastic! That. So, that is everything. That's pretty full exciting, circle. exactly. But um, for the, for the youngins. Linda Carter played Wonder Woman okay, <laughs> for many years. So uh, anyway, the, the, other, the other one is that before you walk into those challenging situations, you can expand as much as you want. You can be, you can be ex obscenely expansive. If you're alone, you're not offending anyone, right? So why not just be as expansive as you can possibly be? And, and then when you walk into that situation, you have sort of optimized your brain to not see it as a threat, but to see it as an opportunity. Opportunity. Right. You walk in with a sense of confidence and security in instead of that sense of fear. You know, it's funny because when you were talking about power posing at one point, I, I, the audience was laughing, I think, with them. Um, I don't know, it was a sense of, wow, isn't it just funny, the idea of, of really putting these ideas into real life and really using these power poses. But I was thinking, as I heard that laughter, I was thinking, I have an eight-year-old son who plays a lot of soccer, and he spends so much time thinking about which expansive posture he's going to adopt at the moment he scores goals. <laughs> and so he's like always practicing his different, you know, these things. Um, and he's got a whole different suite of them that he practices That's with amazing. absolutely no self-consciousness whatsoever. That's great. And that makes me think, and I think I'll just ask you this final question because I want to open it up to our audience questions. Um, but what differences do you see in the adoption of, of, of power posing and, and, and body intelligence in general? Differences for children and for men and women, which is probably a pretty yeah, big question but, to end with. So one, one of the, so I, I studied sexism for 15 years. I still do. But I, I really, if you ask people in my field what does Amy Cuddy study, they would say stereotyping and prejudice or sexism. And I gave a lot of talks on sexism to you know, young women who were going out to interview for jobs. And mm -hmm. I got to tell you, it's not hard to document sexism. It's, it's, you know, it's not a hard do effect to, to, to get. There is sexism. And so these, but what is hard to find are interventions that, that, that will undo it. And at least at the organizational level, I think we're getting, we're, we're moving in that direction, but it's really challenging. So I would give these talks, basically showing all the data on sexism, and, and that would be the end. And, and I'd be like, so good luck with your job interview. And, you know, <laughs> so um, that's part of what got me interested in, in, in posture was, was that this is a tool, like this, it's a, facing prejudice is, is another huge challenge that many of us face. I mean, almost all of us will in some ways. So can I give people a tool? And I'm not saying that it's women's responsibility to fix sexism, although, um, you know, women can be equally sexist, mm -hmm. but, but I wanted to give them a tool to, 
to just try to overcome that, the fear that they have that that's what's happening in those situations. Okay, so I've got this background in sexism research, and of course, with, when it comes to expansive posture, there are gender differences. I mean, uh, uh, you know, the, the manspreading yeah. is manspreading. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I've gotten emails from people going, thanks a lot for manspreading. I'm like, I think that's, people have been doing that for a long time. I'm, not sure, I'm sure that I did not invent manspreading. They're not laying this at my feet. But, um, but it, so yeah, men, men and women, men carry themselves in much more expansive ways on average. Not everyone, but on average. Is it nature or nurture? Of course, that's the next thing that comes up. Um, well, think of little kids. Little kids, boys and girls, they're flailing their arms around, doing cartwheels. They're not scared to express themselves when they're, when, when, before they hit middle school. It's middle school where you start to see your daughters collapse and wrap themselves up and hide. And that, you know, that's where that happens. So I wanted to find out, well, when do kids start learning these associations, or, or do they just know them? So I looked at two age groups, four and age six. And the reason for that is that at around age five, kids start to strongly gender identify. So I thought that it would be good to get those sort of brackets, right? So right before and right after. And if it's innate, then you know, you're gonna see that the four-year-olds are just as sexist as the six-year-old. What we found was that we showed them pictures of, of the wooden dolls like that in either powerful or powerless postures and asked them to on an iPad to touch the boy and touch the girl, right? So six, they saw 16 pairs. By age four, 75% show a bias towards seeing the, the expansive dolls as boys. Um, by age six, 85% of the kids show that bias. But the more alarming result is that at age four, only 13% saw every pair as you know, male expansive, mm -hmm. female contractive. Mm -hmm. By age six, almost half of them did. Uh -huh. So they are learning this, right? This yeah. is not something they're born knowing. Yeah. They don't quite internalize it and express it until they get a little bit older and start to go through puberty, you know, feel more aware of the other gender. But, but I think we have to do something to show our kids, boys and girls, more examples of women carrying themselves with pride. Mm -hmm. My favorite, by the way, is Misty Copeland. Um, I always have this fantasy yeah. that she's in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> she's probably not, but she's like my dream person to me. Um, you're not here, right? <laughs> okay. If you are, just meet me at the bed. No. But, so she, for those of you who don't know, and most New Yorkers do know, Misty Copeland is the first female African-American principal dancer at American Ballet Theater. Uh, not only is she that, but she also overcame enormous challenges. I mean, talk about like social judgment. People were explicitly telling her, you're not built at like a ballerina, you should quit again and again. You're too masculine, you're too short, you're too this, you're too that, honestly, Implicit in that was you're too black mm -hmm. because ballet is seen as a white person's mm -hmm. art. I mean, I, 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 again, as someone who studies also racism, mm -hmm. I'm sure that that was part of the story. But wow, she just kept on pushing, and now what? She's one of the greatest dancers in the world. Mm -hmm. What I love about it is that she's doing the classical ballets, which often involve like the protagonist female like crumpling up dead on the floor at the end. Mm -hmm. yeah. But still, yeah. look at her Instagram feed, and it's 
filled with pictures of her carrying herself with pride and power and beauty and grace in what, what might be one of the most feminine professions in the world. Mm -hmm. So I love, like, I, I love that we're seeing more of that, and I think we need to show, we need to show our kids that, you know, expansiveness is not really linked to gender, mm -hmm. right? You can be whatever you want to be and still carry yourself with power and pride and grace. Right, well said. Thanks. Okay, so we have many, many different questions. Let's see. Um, during your TED Talk, oh, this is great. Okay. <laughs> during your TED Talk, you teared up when recounting the story about your surgery. What are your thoughts about women crying in the workplace? As a woman in financial services, I am scared to death of showing that much emotion and vulnerability in a professional setting. Thank you. Wow. Great question, right? I, I, and uh, yes, yeah, so um, I, I'm so, I really hate any prescription that takes, takes us away from being authentic. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, uh, Honestly, I think that there, the fact that I got teared up probably made the talk more powerful. Mm -hmm. Although, when I rehearsed it and got teared up, we all were like, well, don't do that tomorrow, you know? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I di certainly didn't script it, and I tried not to, but I, you know, it was very hard for me to, to tell that story without getting teared up. So, uh, there's, certainly there's power in showing um, openness and, and, and vulnerability and true feelings. I think you can't do it all the time, right. but uh, and and it probably and I'm guessing it depends on whether you have power in the hierarchy. So I would guess that the more power you have, the more freedom you have to express to to, to do those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I do study also this trade-off between perceived warmth and perceived yeah. confidence, yeah. which is more of a problem for women than for men. So women are more likely to, if they're seen as soft and warm, they lose points on confidence, even if they really are, like, these two things really are not related, right? You can be really warm and really competent. Uh, so my honest answer is um, in moderation, mm -hmm. uh, um, not when you're getting feedback. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, yeah. it's more powerful when you're speaking uh, and you, you're choked up about a story that you're telling. But I do think people make different attributions. And I'm sorry, I feel like this, we're back to the like, negative sexism talks that leave us with like, well, it's kind of bad. But <laughs> people make different attributions for women and men's expressions of emotions. So women, when they show anger in the workplace, are seen as kind of... Um, uh, loose cannons. Men are seen as uh, uh, pr supporting sort of some just cause. So their anger is justified. Women's anger is seen as sort of out of control, too emotional. Uh, so that, I, I, you know, I, I can't really answer that without em empirical data on it, but I would say when you're getting feedback, probably best to, to, to practice receiving that yeah. Um, without crying. Yeah, definitely with the feedback. And you know, what I was thinking as I thought about this question um, is I think it's also very contextual. So you know, in my old life, I used to be a Wall Street lawyer a gazillion years ago. And in that context, compared to the context that I now live and work in, which is much more you know, of fellow authors and social entrepreneurs, and it's a much more kind of touchy-feely environment, honestly. Um, and so 
I can always tell, to this day I can tell when I get an email from an old friend who I knew from my corporate lawyer days, because the very style of emailing is much less emotive, there are mm -hmm. more periods and fewer exclamation points, there, yeah. there's, there are just yeah. fewer declarations of emotion in general. And I remember when I was a lawyer feeling like um, crying, no, but it was really important to me to figure out a way to express caring and humanity through some other socially acceptable means. Yeah. But it's a very delicate dance. I think that's true. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let me see, next one. Um, can you offer some language to use when talking to kids about presence? And this comes from a third grade teacher. Mm -hmm. Great question. So I, I, um, I'm trying to, I, I don't quite have the language yet. I hear so much from teachers, so often from teachers, that what I'm trying to do is build a community of teachers who can talk about how they're applying these principles because the, a lot of them have found their own ways to do it. Um, I mean, the, recently somebody was telling me that they, they get their kids, they're also a grade school teacher, they get their kids to use these expansive postures before tests. And I mean, this is a tiny little detail, but potentially an important one. And f she found that um, she had started by having them do it in a circle facing each other, mm -hmm. and that didn't work. They felt really awkward about that. But when she, she now has them do it in a circle facing outward, mm -hmm. and it seems to work much better. Uh, I know that that's not about language, but um, I think I, I would say the way to get at presence with kids is to get them to start thinking about these self-affirmations, right? You know, what do you really care about? What makes you who you are? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that that gets them in touch with that and, and probably will make it easier for them to be present. So I think talking about that and how, how uh, those things are unique mm -hmm. and they don't have to all be the same and they're part of who you are no matter what happens to you. And then maybe moving into, I think that these conversations about social evaluation and judgment, I mean, it's always really hard in middle school I mean, I think it has been for ages. I wonder if it's harder now. Um, I can't believe how much social media affects kids. You know, it's not anymore about like sitting at the right table at the lunch in the lunchroom. It's like how many likes do you instantly get on Instagram? Yeah. And so I do think we need to be having conversations about that too. And I. I, th I think it has to start sooner. Like, really just getting them to talk about, well, what does it really mean when somebody likes a photo or doesn't? Does it mean they really like it? Does it mean they really like you? I think those kinds of conversations also mm -hmm. attenuate that, that social judgment threat. Yeah. Yeah. So who are you, yeah. and what does social judgment really mean? Yeah, and also to know that when you're seeing those perfectly curated photos on Instagram of everybody perfectly happy and surrounded by all they're perfect friends, that that's not actually the reality. And so not to do that comparison of the kids' own lives oh, yeah, to the this curated presentation right. that they're seeing. Yeah, but, but yeah, I think it's really need think reminding about, sort of about what that. Does it, what do you think is really happening in these pictures? Yeah. You know? What do you yeah. think, what do you, when you post something, what are you trying to communicate? And I, you know, maybe third graders are not, quite, are, are not doing that quite yet. But um, yeah, core values and talking about social judgment, I would say, is a starting point. Okay. Here's another one for you. Uh, my daughter will be interviewing for colleges soon. What advice do you have for young, shy women in this situation? Uh, so, I mean, I have a lot of different pieces, but I'm gonna focus on one that I think people forget about. Another way in which people express power is to, to speak more slowly and to take pauses, and just to pause while they speak. 
Because it's really powerful, right? I mean, <laughs> it is, yeah. but we fear them yeah. because we feel threatened, and if there's a pause, it's like there's a hole and, and an opportunity to, for somebody to get in there and take you down. What I see happening with um, particularly shy people in interviews is that they really rush through their answers. They don't, at, they're afraid to ask questions. They certainly don't pause. Uh, they truncate their answers. So I would say focus on slowing down speech. When somebody asks you a question, trust that they really want you to answer it thoughtfully. So don't even be afraid to pause before you answer it. I mean, reflect. Don't jump right into answering the question. I mean, think about what, what you want to say. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so take up temporal space. Slow down your speed of, 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 of speaking and take pauses. When something is really important that you want to communicate, pause after that to allow it to sink in. People need time to process. Mm -hmm. Give them the time to process. What it shows is that you feel comfortable, that you feel that you deserve to be there, and also that you respect this interaction, that you're engaged, that you're interested in this interaction. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I, I think a related point to the taking up space at the interview is um, to advise your daughter to come prepared with stories to tell mm. beforehand that are gonna illustrate what her contributions have been in the world. Because one of the things that shy people in particular have trouble with is taking up the space to tell stories. Because That's it great. feels as if stories are a waste of time because they're not cutting to the chase of the point. That's right. When in fact, stories are one of the most powerful ways we have of actually making the point. But really hard to internalize that. So, like, they have to come up with the stories, and they also have to practice them in advance until they become fluent with them, and figure out in advance what are the what are the pieces of the story that they're not so comfortable with, and just leave those out on well, the cutting room floor. Definitely, and that that sorry that relates back to something that I didn't get to say earlier about presence, which is sort of what what does presence look like? So we talked about sort of what it is, being attuned to who you are, and being able to express that. What it looks like to other people is that you believe your story, that you, you are confident without being arrogant, yeah. and that you're communicating in a way that's fluid and harmonious because you're, you're being authentic. And when we're not being authentic, when we're lying, all of a sudden um, our, our, we've, there are all these, these uh, asymmetries, there are all these things that aren't going together in what we're saying and what we're doing. So the believing your story point is really important. Mm -hmm. If you ask people, I'd like to do this sort of thought exercise where I'll ask venture capitalists, say you have five equally good ideas and you have to choose one based on the pitch. What are you looking for? And what I hear again and again is, if they don't believe their story, there's no way I believe their story. Mm -hmm. If they're not gonna buy what they're selling, why would I buy what they're selling? Mm -hmm. So if I pick up any hints that they're not in this, now that doesn't mean they have to have all the answers. In fact, if they have all the answers, I'm a little skeptical, because if you really believe your story, then you're open to making it even better. I want to interrupt you for a second on the venture capital point, because I want to ask a question that I know people in the audience are thinking, which is, like, what if you're the kind of person who really believes your story but isn't good at selling it and isn't good at seeming in the moment as if they believe it? Like, and, so I'll give you an example. You know my husband. My husband is amazing at presenting stuff, so I often feel like whatever idea I have, I want him to go and, and just present it. Um, and, and that is a talent. So, so is it right for these venture capitalists to be using that as their criterion? And what do you do 
even more important. What do you do if you're the person in the audience thinking, I'm just not good at that? I would buy anything that Ken sells. Right? Just like, and I, I mean, I, like a month ago, we were going to make some crazy documentary yes, where we go, yes, went on a road tour of the US, and we were like, oh, we're definitely doing this. Right. So, I don't know if we're doing that now, but uh, <laughs> he certainly gets you excited about it in the moment. Uh, he's very good at that. But um, no, I, I, I'm, I don't see this. I got I to gotta say, I don't think that, um, that, that being sort of quiet or reserved means that you can't communicate that you believe your story. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that you do, you do it in, in an authentic, quiet way. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I, sorry, I had another thought when you were, so, uh, hold on. Sure. I need, need to pause. Um, uh, I lost it. Oh, that's okay. I was so distracted okay. by thinking about all the things Ken sold me a few weeks ago <laughs> that I lost it. But, but I, 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 well, for you, one of the questions you asked was, is it a good predictor? It turns out it actually is a good predictor. So this quality of believing your story, or I call it sometimes like grounded enthusiasm, mm -hmm. um, is a good predictor of who is going to stick with a project who is going to inspire the people who work with them on it, and who is going to be open to making it, making it even better. Mm -hmm. So it is a good predictor, but it doesn't mean, I think it, we're getting back a little bit to that sort of charisma piece. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that you have to be super charismatic to show that you believe your story. Sometimes, and I'm sorry, to, to another more pop culture, but you know, Shark Tank is kind of weird, right? But it's also kind of interesting. And the people who I find most compelling are not the ones who come in like super energetic. They're actually quiet and sometimes they're nervous. I mean, you can be nervous, that's okay. But it, so it, in fact, it sometimes signals that, that this you is care. a serious thing and care. you really care yeah. about it. Yeah. So I, I, anyone, if you feel like you don't believe your story, then I think it's probably not the right story. Yeah, no, I think that's really good advice. I, I actually often advise people to get into the habit of speaking from a place of conviction, even like to, to even start small with silly things that don't matter, like how much did you like that movie? But um, there's something you wrote about in your book, and I read it and thought, yes, this has been my mantra forever, which is whatever your emotion is, it's going to communicate itself somehow or other. It's leaking so out. It's going to leak out, That's yeah. Right. So if you do have true conviction, yeah. it is going to come across I agree. one way or another. I absolutely agree. So I think that's some of the answer. OK. Um, OK, you're going to like this one, I know. Um, how <laughs> do I get to dance or something? <laughs> you can. Um, how do you stay present in moments of conflict and address issues in the moment? Oh. And uh, this, is, this question comes specifically about a work setting, but of course it applies yeah. So I, it's recently people have been asking me what's my biggest challenge because I always ask other people. Yeah. Someone turned it around on me. And it turns out my biggest challenge is not speaking. I mean, I, I feel really comfortable in front of lots of strangers. Um, it's conflict with people I really care about, one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, that just makes me so anxious. Mm -hmm. The stakes feel so high. You know, the, the, the fear of losing this person that I care about or doing it wrong is, I think, terrifying. So I think that for, I want to say just, for a lot of people, the biggest challenges aren't even in the workplace, they're actually at home. Mm 
And uh, like the other day, I was, I was uh, talking to somebody who said her biggest challenge is dealing with conflict between her twin daughters because she cares so much about it and she mm -hmm. thinks so much about it, but then she goes in and gets thrown off and she leaves feeling really bad like she did wrong by them. Or, but that is her biggest challenge, mm -hmm. is, is dealing with that kind of conflict. So again, first, recognize that that is a big challenge. I think we think of them all as like public speaking and giving a pitch and going on, audi on an audition. Conflict is definitely um, one of them. To go into it knowing that it, you might not win. And let me give you an example of that. One of the people that I write about in the book is uh, a, a Boston Baptist minister named Jeffrey Brown, who is also a great friend and now kind of a hero to me, uh, who was one of three young black ministers in the early 90s who, who who were responsible for what's known as the Boston Miracle, this dramatic reduction in gang violence. And what they did was to bring the youth into the problem-solving process. So instead of seeing them as the enemy, they saw them as the collaborators. And they did that by walking the streets many, many nights for, for many years, from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. So they met them in their territory. So first they were physically present, which was scary. Uh, but they did it anyway, and they kept doing it. And the other was to shut up and listen. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that chapter is called Stop, Stop Preaching and Start Listening. Mm -hmm. So they, they went in saying, we don't have the answers, and you probably do, but you may not know what they are yet. We're just going to listen. We're going to sit here and listen. So they did. They listened, and it turned out they got a lot of, uh, they got a lot of answers, but they also built enormous trust. So I guess I would say that when you walk into those situations that have a lot of conflict in them, maybe the first thing to do is to be present enough to allow the other person to speak first, to ask them how they're feeling. Can they explain what, you know, from their perspective, what, what's going on, to, to, to give them the floor first. You're not giving power away. You're, you're actually allowing them to feel seen and under, uh, understood. What about and, that moment where, when they're saying something that you find to be incredibly objectionable and incorrect? Yeah. Um, I think you have to, I think you have to bite your tongue. Mm -hmm. I, I, th I do. I think you have to wait. And let them finish. Yes, because first of all, like when you respond in that moment of anger, you're not going to respond well. Mm -hmm. And if you let them go get through it, you're going to get a little bit more information about what that really is about. Right. And maybe then you do take, you pause and you say, I need to step away from this for a minute. But mm -hmm. I am not good at this. This is really a challenge for me. And mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Paul. <laughs> I'm going to get better at this, but, but it is, it, I do find that difficult, and I think letting the other person speak first, that's one way to, that helps enormously, because you also build trust and rapport by doing that, mm -hmm. uh, and you gain information, mm -hmm. um, and you're not responding, you know, um, um, too quickly. Right. Okay. Um, Sadly, I'm looking over, we, we could go for hours, oh and I'm gosh. looking at the clock and realizing uh, we are running out of time. So I'm just going to ask you kind of one finalizing question okay. um, that comes from the audience, and then everybody, Amy's going to be available to sign your books and meet you personally. Okay, final question. How do you define having it all, and how do you grapple with that while also leaning in? Oh my God, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> like, it's like everything. Um, okay. Um, wow. I, 
well, I, I recently realized, like, uh, the, oh, God. For having it all. And you can just answer 10% of that. Okay. Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, yeah. Having it all is not, you know, some cultural prescription by, you know, society, right? So there's no one way of having it all. I mean, so first, what again, back to your core values, what is having it all for you? You know, what really feels like what you would need to feel, um, to feel kind of complete? And be brutally honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. I recently yeah. had to do this. Like I had to realize that I actually need to cut some things out of my life because I thought that having them and doing all of these things was gonna make me feel safer and it was not. It was making me feel more scared because I couldn't do any of them well enough. So I had to cut some of them out of my life and that was really a scary thing to do. Yeah. So figure out what having it all really is for you. And I realized that having it all was actually having less. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean less, less professionally. It means that the professional part of my life has fewer things in it. And I get to spend more time on the things that I really love professionally. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what is it for you? Um, leaning in, geez, you know, it's, I, there's, there's so much overlap or perceived overlap between that idea, Cheryl's work, and, and what I do, I, the lean-in posture piece somehow gets kind of conflated and all mixed up. Um, I think, you know, and I think, it, I think that her work honestly gets misunderstood often. I don't think she's saying that everyone, ha all women have to want to be executives. Right. I think what she's saying is when there's something you care about, I mean, don't, you, you, you cannot withdraw in fear. You have, to be, you have to be brave enough to push through the fear, lean forward, and engage with it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you have to be like men or you have to want these things. It means figure out what you want and then don't let it slip through your fingers because you're scared. I just came across a quote about this the other day that in some ways I think sums up so much of your work. And the quote was, um, don't let fear become a thief. It will steal so many precious things. Oh, that's so good. That's it. That's, that's it. I'm, I, I don't want to, I'm not going to let you end with the best quote. Oh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That is a great one. Um, okay. So I just want to say, everybody, can we give Amy a fantastic round of applause? Can we now give Susan a fantastic round of applause? I actually do want to leave you with, with a quote, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to one-up you. That was a great one. But, but it is my favorite, and from one of my favorite people who ever lived, Maya Angelou, who had almost everything figured out, it seems. But she said, um, stand up straight and realize who you are, that you tower over your circumstances. And to me, that kind of captures all of this. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave you with that. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92 yondemand 